KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. Good morning. I'm Annika Colbert. It's Friday, January 22nd. Answering your questions about the COVID-19 vaccine, that's next. But first, let's do the headlines. San Diego County public health officials reported more than 1,100 new COVID-19 infections on Thursday and 48 additional deaths. That's following Wednesday's single-day record of 65 deaths. The state has lifted stay-at-home orders for the greater Sacramento region, but it's a mystery how or why the state decided to do so. Public health restrictions are based on ICU capacity projections, and State Health Department spokeswoman Allie Bay says that ICU projections for the greater Sacramento region are not being shared publicly because officials believe they could cause more confusion. San Diego will make more than $42 million in federal emergency rental assistance available to city residents. Mayor Todd Gloria made the announcement on Thursday. He says he is also proposing an extension to eviction protections for renters and businesses. It's been a warm January so far, but a cold storm is expected to roll in this weekend. Forecasters say rain is likely on Friday and will peak on Saturday. The National Weather Service has issued a winter weather advisory for the mountains starting at 10 o'clock tonight. From KPBS, you're listening to San Diego News Now. Stay with me for more of the local news you need. KPBS On Demand is supported by Arizona Raft Adventures, a third-generation family-owned outfitter providing experiential multi-day Colorado River rafting adventures through the Grand Canyon, hiking, exploration, education, and fun. Only a seven-hour drive from San Diego. Learn more at azraft.com. COVID-19 vaccine distribution across the U.S. is starting to go into full swing. But here in San Diego County, however, the rollout has left many people with a lot of unanswered questions. KPBS health reporter Taryn Mento spoke with Family Health Center Assistant Medical Director Dr. Christian Ramers to answer your questions on the vaccine rollout here in San Diego County. Dr. Ramers, you know, thanks for joining me to answer questions from the audience. Thank you for having me. I want to begin with a question that's on a lot of minds. Doug Shemansky of Rancho Penasquitos asks about vaccine distribution here in San Diego County. So the question I have is my uh, sister-in-law and my friend both got their vaccines up in Northern California, and they're 65 and older. Why do we have the delay in San Diego? Is it because we don't have enough vaccines, or we just aren't being able to handle the distribution? So that's a really good question, and um, I understand it's been quite chaotic for people to watch what's going on. Part of the reason is because you have several different entities uh, giving their own guidelines of, of who gets the vaccine next. Remember, this started with the National Academy of Sciences, and then the CDC has the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices. The state of California has now stepped in, and, and they're pushing some guidelines out as well. And it's trying to balance many competing factors. We don't want these guidelines to slow down the distribution of vaccines. 
Uh, and then vaccine numbers are being distributed at different rates to different counties. So the reason some people in lower tiers may be getting vaccine first is because a, a vaccinating entity may have leftover doses that they wanted to reserve for a higher tier, such as phase 1A or healthcare workers. And let's say some people miss the appointment or decline the vaccination. What do they do with those leftover doses? I think everybody has said that you are encouraged to use them into lower tiers. There's also been a little bit of mixed messaging coming from the state where the state says phase 1B is age 65 and up, uh, whereas we know that people age 75 and up are higher risk, and that's what the original recommendation was. So different counties and different entities are at slightly different uh, levels there. We're all moving towards the same thing, and I think it's going to be just a matter of the supply pushing through uh, where we're going to get through these phases in an orderly fashion. Quick follow-up, what do you know about supply as it varies from jurisdiction to jurisdiction? I don't know much. I know that it's coming in through the state. It's coming out through the counties. I can just say for sure, overall, we don't have enough vaccine to move forward as quickly as we want to be doing. A common question we get from people is when will they be able to get the vaccine? We know there's a tiered system. Healthcare workers and those in long-term care facilities were first. The county recently allowed people 75 years and older at its sites. You sit on the county's vaccine clinical advisory group that is supposed to inform rollout eligibility in these later tiers. What input did the group provide ahead of the county's announcement this week to expand to people 75 and older? So the advisory committee you know, puts forth recommendations and we're getting it from all sides as well, from CDC and from the state and from what we think should be done. Um, we understand that it's been very confusing for everybody. One of the main recommendations that we had to the county was to create a website or an app or a simple place where you could go to find out um, when, your, when your turn is up. The, right now, it's information that's on the website by phases and by tiers, uh, coronavirus-sd.gov, I believe. But an app would be much more convenient. And San Francisco has started rolling this out. And the state of California has started rolling this out as well. It's myturn.ca.gov. Very simple. You say your age, your underlying conditions, your occupation, and then it will let you know what tier you're in. That, I'm told, is coming very soon. And that has been a major recommendation of the committee to back to the county is that we need to do this right now. Now, to answer a little more deeply in your question, phase 1B Clearly, when you broaden the group to, down to age 65, you get hundreds of thousands of more people. And yet we know that those that are older and 75 and older are the highest risk. So there's this sort of two-tiered two thing where we want to open as fast as we can. We don't want the, the rules to slow people down so much, but we still need to be prioritizing those who are at most risk. And then moving into further phase 1B by occupation, we just don't have enough vaccine doses really uh, available to get too deep into that. Deborah Mendelson, who lives in San Marcos, wants to know when she will be eligible. She wrote in online that she is 60 years old, works as an independent home health caregiver, and cares for two elderly individuals, each in their own homes. She's wondering what tier does that put her in and what documentation would she need to show? That's a really good question. And you may have heard that phase 1A, which is healthcare workers, our health officer, Dr. Wooten, has defined a healthcare worker in the broadest sense possible. So somebody who is a certified in-home caregiver, uh, in my opinion, uh, and I think in most vaccinators' opinions, would be a, a, a healthcare worker, uh, you know, by all intents and purposes, and should be included in phase 1A. 
Um, that's where we come with this number of about you know 500,000 or so people that really should be in phase 1A. And we're still trying to work through that as we move forward into the next phases. Auspicio Ortega wanted to know when he too can get the vaccine. He is 69 years old and diabetic. So he's wondering when and how pre-existing conditions will be factored in in the order of vaccine distribution. It's a really good question, and it's evidence of just how confusing this can be, because the state has said phase 1B actually can move down to 65 years old and above, but we don't have enough vaccine to cover all of those people. And so the county has prioritized 75 and above in that specific uh, phase 1B. Pre-existing conditions are not really even being considered right now at this phase. We're just going based on age. And what, if you look at the county's website, we're at phase 1B now doing 75 and older. We're going next to 65 and older. So really, uh, this person is going to be next in line once that announcement happens. Pre-existing conditions don't really get factored in until phase 1C. So him at 69 years old would likely would be able to get it first when we expand to those that are 65 years and older. That's correct. So that that doesn't in, in phase one B, uh, the state has lowered this to 65 and older, even though earlier on it was 75. So again, there's a two two pronged thing here. We're we're saying that uh, when it, when you're in one B, you can go to age 65 and above, but 75 and above should be reasonably prioritized. And now from Oceanside, Joyce Malloy has two questions for you. The first one is about storage. Throughout the state of California, how are they keeping all these Pfizer vaccines at the correct temperature? Yeah, so this question gets at uh, part of the logistic problem. There's been many logistic uh, uh, difficult things to um, to go through. Minus 70 degrees is tough. And then as soon as you take it and thaw it out from minus 70 degrees, there's a limited half-life for that uh, that vaccine to still be viable. And really, this is the work, the, the really difficult implementation work from the state and the county working together. Where are those freezers? Where can they reasonably store the vaccine? And then when you need to get it out to further and further away from that uh, freezer, how can you ensure that there's going to be enough people there to receive the vaccine? This is why, you know, me as, a, as a, somebody that works in clinics, in some of our smaller clinics, it may not be the best place to give vaccine because let's say you have five high-risk people that need to be vaccinated. We thaw a, a vial of that vaccine and we can only find five. We need another five people to get vaccine. And one thing that has been emphasized over and over and over is we cannot waste this vaccine. So if you have five people in front of you that are high risk and you open a vial, you need to find another five, maybe by going down a tier or so to make sure those vaccines end up in people's arms. And now to Joyce's second question, given that the U.S. is is rushing to give people their first shot without a guarantee that the second dose will be available, she asks, do we have evidence showing that the vaccine will be effective if the second shot is given after the 21 to 28 day window? Yeah, the answer to that is we don't have evidence. We have uh, our, our scientific assumptions. We have a little bit of evidence from the clinical trials where they tested people in that short period between dose one and dose two. And we saw maybe a 50 to 80 or 90% efficacy in that very short period, but there are no guarantees how long that immunity is going to last. And, and my own opinion and that of many other scientists is, is that we really should use these vaccines as they were studied. Uh, which is 95% efficacy with two doses, and it doesn't even start until about a week or two after that second dose. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Ramers, for answering these questions from our audience. Absolutely. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. That was Dr. Christian Ramers, Assistant Medical Director at the Family Health Center, speaking with KPBS health reporter Taryn Mento. 
A second super vaccination site for the region opened in Chula Vista on Thursday. The super site aims to do about 5,000 vaccinations per day. KPBS's Jacob Ayer reports. The Chula Vista super vaccination site builds off of the county's first super station outside of Peco Park. Both locations are administering vaccines seven days a week to people eligible under Phase 1A, including those 75 and older. County Supervisor Nora Vargas says the new superstation keeps to the county's promise to deliver equitable vaccine distribution to San Diego's hardest-hit neighborhoods. Any of the future investments, including vaccine distribution, are, is going to be made in communities that were the, where the highest need is um, in, in the region. And we're going to do this based on science and data. Both superstations require appointments, which can be scheduled through the county website, vaccinationsuperstationsd.com. Jacob Ayer, KPBS News. COVID-19 patients are currently being treated inside the former Sacramento Kings Arena in Northern California. CAP Radio's Pauline Bartoloni reports. Doctors and nurses are treating 14 patients at the arena north of Sacramento's downtown. During the course of the pandemic, it served as a spillover facility for communities as far north as Butte, Shasta, and Lake Counties. Brian Ferguson with California's Office of Emergency Services says the facility is meant to ease the burden on hospitals who are treating the sickest COVID patients. So these are people who can self-feed. They may require oxygen, but they're not intubated. And so there is like a very high level of care, but it's people who don't require like very intensive hospitalizations. Patient beds are divided by plastic sheets in a smaller gymnasium within the arena. Ferguson says they'll use the space for as long as necessary. In Sacramento, I'm Pauline Bartoloni. Coming up, the VA and veteran groups are aware of extremism in their ranks, but they find that there's very few resources available to help pull people back from the brink. That story's next, just after the break. KPBS On Demand is supported by Arizona Raft Adventures, a third-generation family-owned outfitter providing experiential multi-day Colorado River rafting adventures through the Grand Canyon. Hiking, exploration, education, and fun. Only a seven-hour drive from San Diego. Learn more at azraft.com. Some of the people who participated in the siege at the U.S. Capitol were veterans. And while the VA and veterans groups are aware of extremism in their ranks, there are very few resources to address the problem or bring people back from the brink. KPBS military reporter Steve Walsh has been following the story, and he brings us this report. 35-year-old Ashley Babbitt was an Air Force veteran from San Diego. She was killed by police as she tried to push deeper into the Capitol on January 6th. Her social media is a mix of QAnon conspiracies and posts falsely claiming that the election was stolen. In one video, the avidly pro-Trump Babbitt segued from immigration to California politicians as she drove. I'm so sick of these politicians in this state. I can't take it anymore. They're all worried about what Trump is doing. How about we worry about what the hell you're doing? The VA and major veterans groups have condemned the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. 
But some groups worry that vets are being unfairly singled out. John Router is the spokesman for the American Legion. The radicalization among certain fringe elements, we don't see it as more of a problem for veterans as America in general. The American Legion has a program to confront suicide among veterans. They even have Legion posts inside prisons to help rehabilitate veterans. They don't have similar programs to confront extremism directly, even though days before the insurrection, the Union Tribune uncovered a local post commander who boasted being a member of the far-right group the Proud Boys. Veterans groups are not alone. Pete Simi researches violent extremism at Chapman University. We're way behind the eight ball. I mean, we just have not dealt with this problem in a meaningful way. We don't have a national strategy and state and local resources aren't there. Simi says the number of hate groups spiked during the Obama administration. There was a major resurgence after Obama's election in 08. And there was a number of different factors, not unlike what we see today, that were helping propel that. And we did nothing. We, we did. We, in fact, we denied that it was a problem. Much of the research into deradicalizing people who have taken up violent extremism centers around Islamic extremism, Simi says. And as far as specific intervention programs designed specifically for veterans, um, it's just, it's not there. Tony McAleer, author of The Cure for Hate, says vets have long been a target of extremist groups. I can see how perhaps people get manipulated by their patriotism, you know, and, and duped into doing things that, you know, when they take a step back, when I, you know, I can't believe I did that. McAleer, a former neo-Nazi and a Canadian vet, counsels people trying to leave extremist groups. He says some veterans of recent wars come back desensitized to other cultures after being put into situations where they cannot always tell friend from foe. You have to dehumanize other human beings. You know, to prepare people for violence, you have to dehumanize the target first. Nearly a decade ago, McAleer also helped found Life After Hate, which now has a federal grant to help those trying to leave violent extremist groups. Spokesman Dimitrios Kalanzis says the difference between now and a decade ago is that people are speaking more openly about the threat of domestic radical extremism. People will hopefully, more people will get the help they need before they become radicalized to violence, before they actually take that last and final step. In the wake of the siege of the Capitol and as awareness grows, there is a hope that veterans groups will be more openly involved themselves in deradicalization programs. After all, these are the groups that veterans often turn to first for help. That story from KPBS military reporter Steve Walsh. And that's it for the podcast today. Be sure to catch KPBS Midday Edition at noon on KPBS Radio or watch KPBS Evening Edition at 5 o'clock on KPBS Television. And as always, you can find more San Diego news online at kpbs.org. I'm Annika Colbert. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu.